Good morning, everyone. I'm going to read Isaiah 55, verses 1 and then verses 6 through 9 for this morning. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God that he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I uh, love Easter for many reasons. One of them is because you all dress up a little bit more, which is nice. You all show up a little bit earlier, which is also nice. So uh, it is good, good to be here and good... Um, to be worshiping with you this morning. I um, know that I've told several of you this, uh, but my daughter wants a dog. And I know what many of you are thinking, well, (laughs) no big deal, just get her a dog, you know? Uh, It's not that hard. Um, But many of you also know that I'm not much of an animal person. Okay, I have had good animal experiences in the past. I had a goldfish named Zach. Yeah, he was fantastic. He sat on a little bowl, uh, just right in there, floating on a a little table in our living room, and uh, he lived for eight years, which was quite a feat for the goldfish for several reasons. One, because I didn't think they lived that long. Two, because sometimes I remembered to feed him, you know? And I don't know if my mom, you know, kind of threw in food when I forgot, but he was resilient. And he hung around, and he, like, was about the proper amount of care that I would like to invest into an animal. But um, my daughter is just full court pressing me on this dog thing. Brings it up all the time. Uh, tells me how much she loves me, but attaches it to a dog. And uh, I was telling my friend Abigail the other day about this situation, hoping that I could rally another you know, person to my side to say, yeah, you probably shouldn't get a dog. And uh, she casually remarked that perhaps I have some dog trauma in my past. So I thought about it for a little bit, and I do. I have some trauma from dogs, and I'm using Easter to uh, express it. Um, <laughs> so, so first off, I, one of the reasons... Uh, and it's one that you're probably familiar with. Dogs lick their butt and then they lick your face. <laughs> I, I know we don't want to admit it, but it's true. Uh, it just kind of comes with the territory of having a dog. And that's not something I've gotten used to. I don't really like that idea. And even if you're like, well, my dog's different than all the rest, just look at how they greet one another. Guarantee your dog's not any different, okay? But the second reason... And uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on this simply because there's a lot of kids in here. But when I was 10 to 12, uh, I got bit in the face by a dog. 
And uh, I was playing with this dog, and it's partly my fault, at least that's what my parents say, because they told me not to, and I did anyway. And so I went over to this dog, and kind of got down and was playing with it, and it reacted a way that I wasn't anticipating, and then my lip wasn't really hanging on anymore. And we had to go to the ER, and they fixed it, and it was all good, but it was le- I'm kind of jumpy around dogs. I get a little nervous. But the third primary reason that I have dog trauma is because I at one point had a dog, just for a few years, and uh, unfortunately it died unexpectedly, and I was crushed. I was devastated. I had grown so attached to this dog, even though like, I didn't really want to be, I was attached. And it, it, like, it hurt. One day we're outside, we're playing, everything's fine. We come inside, and the dog doesn't seem to be doing as well. It looked like it had a stomach ache. I'm no vet. I have no idea. So I tell my parents, and they're like, yeah, we should look out. And then it's just kind of whining, and it hurts. And so uh, knowing our family, we waited just long enough that there was no way we could take it to the vet. And uh, we called the vet, and he's like, I'm not open. You can bring it in in the morning. But in the meantime, it sounds like a stomach ache, so just get it some Pepto-Bismol. And I'm like, like the pink stuff? And then, yeah, absolutely. So I don't know if that's a standard in the pet industry with vets, but my dad rushes off to get Pepto-Bismol, and then uh, we try to get the dog to want it, and certainly it doesn't. And so then we try to, like, force feed the dog Pepto-Bismol, knowing that it'll help its stomach ache. And so my parents reassured me it'll be fine. We'll take the vet Uh, the dog to the vet first thing in the morning, so go to bed, sleep well. So I did. Went to bed, woke up, sprinted upstairs to my parents' bedroom because it was laying at the bottom of my parents' bedroom uh, or the bottom of their bed uh, for that night because it wasn't feeling well, and I get up there, and uh, it's completely stiff and cold, and my dog is no more, and I bawled. It was just crushed. Um, my parents made me go to school. Yep, cried all the way to school. Yeah, but it's a good thing they did, you know, because you know what I learned that day? Absolutely nothing, because no kid learns anything at school on the day their dog dies. It, I don't know why they did it, but that's maybe part of the trauma too. But no, nonetheless, I had, and I have, dog trauma. And it reminds me of something that we read this morning, and I bring it up because this was, I kid you not, probably one of my parents' responses the moment we lost our dog. And it is the response that comes up at moments when we have no idea what to say about the circumstances of life. And it kind of usually goes something like this, why did my dog die, or why did this horrible thing happen, or... Why did God allow that to take place? And the answer tends to be, I don't know, but God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And they are, absolutely. But have you noticed that we use that phrase at only the worst of times? And the phrase goes like this. It's going to be on the screen, I believe, for... My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts 
than your thoughts. The phrase is meant to be reassuring. It's meant to speak to the transcendence of God, his otherness, his awesomeness, the inability for us to ever be able to capture or understand all that God is or to think or act like the Almighty. But we only use it at certain times. I mean, I have never once heard someone say, hey, I bought a lottery ticket this weekend and I just won the Powerball jackpot. And then someone responds with like, oh my goodness, God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. That's crazy. Never. Nobody like says a job promotion and uh, something amazing that happened to them or some, and people respond with that. Never. It's always reserved for those moments of like indecision, those moments of uh, catastrophe or frustration or just exasperation with the circumstances. And then we go, well, you know, we'll never be able to figure out the ways of God. They're so much grander than us. And while I agree with that to a point, I think the context might give us some indication as to what God is really getting at in that section. We just read it, so I'll remind you of what it says. In verse 6, the context speaks, and it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What What you might notice in the text is that it's repeating. So it's using different language to say the exact same thing. So seek the Lord, or call upon him, being the same idea, while he can be found or while he's near. It's repeating for emphasis. It's like getting your attention. It's pointing things out. So it's saying draw near to God. Look for him. Seek him. Then in verse 7 it says, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Again, the wicked, the unrighteous, both his thoughts and his ways. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. So let him repent. Let him turn direction. Let him adjust his course. Let him be redirected. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now we use terms like forgive, cover over sin. Theologically, we use terms like atonement. But the context tells us that God will abundantly pardon and follows it up with the phrase that we just talked about. So look at it again. Our God will abundantly pardon for God's thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So here's what this means for us today. When it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to pardon, when it comes to the righting of wrongs, the forgiving of offenses, the removal of debt, when it comes to any and all forms of forgiveness, God does not think about it the way we do, and God does not act upon it the way we do. That is an amazing, amazing statement. If you have ever been offended, hurt, abused, lied to, 
humiliated, taken advantage of, criticized, hit, slandered. Any other offense that you could imagine has happened to you or been directed toward you than you have been wounded. And anytime we're wounded, we have to figure out what to do with it. Anytime an offense has come toward us, we have to figure out what to do with it. A wound calls for a response, and in general, we find it difficult to pardon. We find it difficult to forgive. Even if the offense is small, even if the impact is marginal, there are times we find it incredibly difficult to forgive. It gets even harder to forgive, even more difficult to pardon, if the number of offenses change. So if you need to forgive one time, that's, it's doable. Maybe even if you have to forgive the same offense a second time, also doable. But a third time, a fourth time, a fifth time, this keeps going, it becomes more and more difficult to forgive. It's also difficult if the number of offenders changes. So not just the offenses, but if the number of people that I need to forgive increases. So, okay, I forgive you, okay, and I also forgive you. But that if that keeps growing and growing and growing, it becomes more and more difficult for me as a person to want to forgive anyone. It becomes more challenging. The wounding becomes different. If my whole family wounds me, if the whole community wounds me, it's way different than if one person did. But also it becomes more difficult determining the weight of the offense. Again, if it's a small or seemingly insignificant mistake, it's easier to forgive than if it is a deep, long-lasting wound. If I have been damaged or hurt in some significant way that cuts to the core of me, to pardon someone may be very slow or may not even be considered possible. And these are natural reactions for us. It's normal. Because what we want to do, or at least I'll speak for myself, what I want to do is plot revenge. If somebody has hurt me, if someone has wounded me, my natural reaction is to want revenge. To strike back. At least at the same level, but probably even like a shade or two above what you did. If you get me this way, I'll get you that way, right? But some of us are a little bit more cunning with it. What I like to think I do is not just have immediate revenge. I like to like savor my revenge, right? Maybe you fit into this category. You're the person that goes, man... I'm not going to do anything about that right now, you know. I don't want to jump right into it. I want to be a little bit more strategic. It also gives me the ability to be a little bit more self-righteous at the same time because I didn't respond right away. I held back, but I held back so that I could get you at just the right moment. When you're at your weakest, most vulnerable moment is when I will drop the revenge, right? And so maybe if you 
some of you fit into that category where a well-timed revenge is what you're looking for. And others of us don't want to respond with revenge. We don't want to go back toward the other person, but we just can't let go of it. And so then what happens is we end up taking the wound and passing it around. You see this happens a lot. We don't deal with it ourselves. We don't exact the revenge. And so because it needs somewhere to go, it needs something to happen to it, usually it's the people closest to us that receive it. We carry it long enough until our kids or our spouse, our coworkers, our friends, our family become the recipients of the wound. Or if we don't get rid of it at all, we just carry it because for some reason we think if we hold on to it a lot longer, it'll somehow get better. And so we have this wound that we keep and it becomes like a weight that just gets heavier and heavier and heavier and we can't seem to get rid of it and soon we become defined by it or imprisoned by it. But here's what's amazing about the passage we're looking at this morning. It says, for he, God, will abundantly pardon. For his thoughts are not your thoughts, and his ways of doing things are not your way of doing things. If we harbor malice, if we seek revenge, if we are slow to forgive, what the text is saying is that he harbors no malice. That he has no desire for revenge. That he is quick to forgive. No reluctance whatsoever. Because his ways of doing things are completely contrary to our way of doing things. No matter the number of offenses, his forgiveness grows in proportion. No matter the weight of the wound... His willingness to forgive and the quickness with which he forgives grows to the same weight or to the same level or beyond whatever weight is needed. While forgiveness is beyond our capacity to fully understand or explain, it is one of the principal themes of the gospel. Forgiveness is an act of freeing the other from debt or from punishment. And we usually, when we talk about this, especially in the church, we try to talk about it in ways that make sense to us. Again, our thoughts in our ways, not his thoughts in his ways. And so we try to define it in terms of wounds. And so we go, man, if, if there's a wound, then there needs to be a payment of another wound. An eye for an eye, an evil for an evil, uh, that kind of idea. And so, since somebody needs to be wounded, then God wounded Jesus. Or we talk about it in financial terms, and we go, man, there's a debt that has to be paid, and so since the debt has to be paid, then somebody's got to pay the debt, and Jesus pays the debt, because God makes him pay the debt. And all of those thoughts are us trying to like wrap our mind around this thing of forgiveness that is like so complex and so brilliant. But what God does that's so other than us, what God does that is like so impossible for us to do for ourselves is he absorbs the cost. He takes it on himself. 
Tim Keller says it this way, to forgive, to willingly choose not to direct rage and fury at the people who've harmed you is immensely painful. It's like a death, but it's a death that leads to resurrection. See, forgiveness means refusing to make us pay for what we did, to cancel the debt by paying it or absorbing it himself. To still demand the payment is not to forgive. To still demand the payment presents God as a God that never really forgives because the only way we get off the hook is because someone paid for it, not because it's been truly forgiven. Yet God absorbs the debt, taking on the cost himself. In God's love through Christ, that sin, as the, the scriptures tell us, is paid for by God simply absorbing or eating the cost of it. At the cross, we discover a God who would rather die than kill his enemies. The cross is where God in Christ absorbs sin and recycles it into forgiveness. The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God endures in Christ as he forgives. We see this echoed throughout the scriptures again and again. You'll see a few on the screen. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. This is thoughts that are higher than our thoughts, that he has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. He says later to us, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven on account of his, Jesus' name. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. Today is a day we celebrate because today is a day so powerful because it brings the completion of the work of Jesus to its fullness in forgiveness. And when Jesus Christ rises from the dead, it is a moment that everything fundamentally shifts. It completely changes. N.T. Wright describes it this way. He says, the forgiveness of sins was never simply a random individualistic concept. When the early church announced forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ, this didn't just mean that individual sinners could get right with God, though of course it did mean that. Forgiveness was a whole program, a whole way of life, the new covenant way of life in which the restoration which God offered to all who believed in Jesus was to characterize families and communities worldviews and life paths, a jubilee movement that whether it came upon anything amiss in human relations or society would move heaven and earth to put it to right, to restore things to the way they should be. Easter is therefore the glad and rich assurance that God has set the whole created order right at last. Easter is a statement to say that he has abundantly pardoned you. 
that he has overwhelmingly pardoned me. It is a wide and cosmic vision. It is the most extraordinary of all moments to celebrate. And that is what we do today. In our song, in our liturgy, and even in our time this morning in the Word, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we rejoice in it. And we see it not only as his resurrection, but our resurrection. We receive this because he has abundantly pardoned us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is our resurrection. So for all who eat this morning at the Lord's table, this Easter, my prayer is that you may know the risen Jesus as a living reality in your life. That you may know the reality of a risen Jesus in the life of your family, and that you may know the reality of a risen Jesus in this community. Let me pray. God, we are amazed by the reality that you, in Jesus, absorbed the full cost of sin. That you were willing to take on all of the pain, all of the wound, all of the hurt that sin causes. That we know that it was our actions, our intentions, the ways in which we were selfish in the world that brought pain and wounding and you absorbed it canceled it. You forgave it. And we sit here this morning as your children knowing that through Jesus that we have been abundantly pardoned. That your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. That we would have never come up with it this way. We would have never devised of this plan. What we would have simply said is that we must pay or that that Jesus must in some unique way pay, but you in a most radical of all ways absorb the cost in Jesus for us. So God, may today we celebrate that. And may the celebration of that on this day remind us that for the next 364, before we gather again for this moment, that we would every single day realize it is a resurrection moment that our lives have been completely changed, and that we sit in the power of your spirit because we have been abundantly pardoned. As we take the Lord's Supper this morning, may we be reminded of that amazing truth. May we rejoice in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.